Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Pittsburgh to discuss fostering hospital and ICU resilience. Sure. Uh, My name is Ian Barbash. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and a health services researcher at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm also a pulmonary and critical care physician in the UPNC Health System, where I serve as the associate medical director of the Presbyterian Medical ICU and the medical director of the UPNC ICU Telemedicine Service. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Ian. Um, You published an article in JAMA entitled Fostering Hospital Resilience, Lessons from COVID-19. Maybe you could tell us uh, what is the motivation for your viewpoint article? Sure. Uh, Well, thanks, first of all, for for having me on. Uh, That article was motivated in large part from my own observations as both a frontline healthcare provider and as a member of a large health system with a mission to care for a large population of critically ill patients across a region. And I was really interested in understanding how hospitals responded to the pandemic beyond just the sort of traditional 4S uh, model of staff, stuff, space, and systems. In particular, given that lots of hospitals had lead time to implement that sort of approach, I wondered why some hospitals seem to cope relatively well with surges of COVID patients, while others seemed to struggle. And fundamentally, I was trying to come up with a frame that might allow us to learn from this pandemic in in ways that can inform not just future pandemics, but just how we deliver healthcare in general in the face of lots of different challenges to the healthcare system. Yeah, preparation uh, was lacking in some hospitals and really done well in others. Um, So maybe you could, for our audience, remind us, you know, how did COVID-19 alter healthcare in hospitals and ICU? And after that, we can jump into what framework we should have in order to deal if this challenge rises again. Sure. Um, You know, I think the first, or, you know, Fundamentally, COVID presented uh, just an unprecedented number of critically ill patients with respiratory failure to to hospitals that were unaccustomed to taking care of that volume of sick patients on ventilators requiring ICU care, and uh, that that was just an immense strain on um, resources and on staff. Um, You know, I think what's interesting, though, is that much of the hard work of ICU teams that has garnered attention during the pandemic, like delivering complicated care to really sick patients under challenging physical and emotional circumstances, is frankly just what it means to work in the ICU. The pandemic certainly increased the magnitude and the visibility of these challenges, um, but many of them were the same that that ICU staff have been dealing with for a long time. Um, I think it was it was really the number of patients that that was challenging, um, and a lot of I think early on a lot of uncertainty about what this would look like. I think over time the 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 challenges have evolved somewhat, and now largely what we're observing is just this 
sustained strain on the healthcare workforce that was already sort of not fully um, at capacity before the pandemic, but now is, is really an immense challenge uh, for hospitals. I think the other thing now, you know, particularly in the last year, year or so that has been unusual is that some of the social and political sort of milieu that exists outside the hospital and society has come to bear in the hospital, including sometimes in interactions between healthcare providers and, and patients and families. And that's really unusual, um, again, at this scale and something that I think most healthcare providers aren't accustomed to. Um, and so I think that, you know, uh, has been one set of challenges. And another is that it's just disrupted sort of the some of the traditional care models. Um, small hospitals that historically could routinely transfer, you know, any patient on a ventilator to another hospital simply can't do so because the hospitals that traditionally would receive those patients cannot possibly accommodate all of the sick patients in a region. And so smaller hospitals have been put in the position of having to take care of much sicker patients than they were historically accustomed to. I do want to say also, though, that, you know, I, I think at the same time that there are all these challenges, I think the pandemic has made many of us immensely grateful for the privilege of doing meaningful work uh, and also for our health. Um, and that of our colleagues, family, and friends in a time when we know that many of our colleagues at um, institutions across the hospital have, have had to take care of their own, which is uh, a real challenge. Yeah, we've had numerous challenges over the past year or two, and um, some of them have resulted in considerable amounts of burnout. And um, our audience is obviously aware of uh, the, the numbers of nurses that are leaving uh, the medical field, as well as uh, physicians and respiratory therapists. Um, so this gets to the heart of your um, article. You know, uh, in order to deal with burnout, we have to foster resili resilience both in the hospital institution, its framework, as well as in the personnel, the folks that are taking care of patients. How would you recommend we go about doing this? Yeah, so I think fundamentally I think about resilience. Uh, and, and, well, I should say first that, you know, resilience is not a novel concept. Um, this has a long history, uh, particularly in the psychological literature um, and, and somewhat in, uh, in other aspects of medicine uh, from, an, from a personal resilience standpoint. Um, and then it's been an increasingly... Um, recognized concept uh, in, you know, in management. Um, but resilience to me from an organization standpoint means that an organization has the ability to adapt to challenging and unpredictable circumstances, which distinguishes it somewhat from simply, you know, developing and executing a plan for a set of known crises like a disaster plan in the case of an earthquake or a disaster plan in the in the face of a flood in an area where those are anticipated problems. Um, I think a resilient organization is able to sort of think and act flexibly in response to shifting challenges. Um, I think that one thing we've learned during the pandemic is the importance of 
explicitly considering trade-offs and the downstream consequences of a decision that seems like it makes sense in the moment. I think a good example of that is the fact that, you know, so-called elective or non-emergency care was shut down quite broadly early in the pandemic, even in places where there wasn't a current major surge. And that sustained interruption of care created a major backlog that I think is now contributing to some of the severe capacity constraints that hospitals are facing. Um, and similarly, you know, if you're responsible for trying to help maintain the health of patients within a region, you know, shutting down lots of non-COVID care so that you can deliver care to COVID patients, you know, may not globally improve the health of, of all of your um, patients. So I just think, you know, naming and, and explicitly considering those trade-offs is important. And similarly, you know, the, the impact of organizational decisions on the workforce. Um, I, I think that, you know, resilient organizations probably found ways to balance patient load and share resources within a health system or a region to try to avoid any one hospital sort of feeling really underwater. Um, and fundamentally, they cultivated and invested in their human resources and in systems to support people. Um, and I think at the at the top of these organizations were compassionate leaders who could clearly communicate in ways that helped all of the healthcare workers and other staff within the organization understand why decisions were being made in connection with mission and purpose um, that that is fundamentally why most people are engaged in healthcare. Yeah, I think the point that you make about considering downstream consequences of decisions is really important. And as you said, um, cutting off the elective cases just created a massive backlog. And a lot of folks who had um, heart disease and lung cancer, their care was delayed. Um, I want to ask you about um, burnout um, because yeah. we've seen a great uh, uh, increase in burnout in physicians, nurses, aspiratory therapists. Um, we have never experienced a pandemic like this in our lifetimes. And speaking to folks uh, in the 90s, they don't recall anything as severe as mm -hmm. this. Um, this is a challenge that uh, in the 21st century may have eclipsed some of the stuff that happened in the 20th century. How do you deal with um, burnout in uh, folks who've never been subjected to this kind of stress before? And how do we prevent uh, losing massive, uh, uh, you know, a, a drain of, of health personnel from our uh, systems? Yeah. I think the first, you know, and most important step is to just acknowledge that it's a problem. You know, a lot of the burnout discussions, I would say, in the last, you know, two decades, there's been a lot of discussion of personal resilience and encouraging, you know, individual healthcare workers to find ways to cope with stress. And I think this pandemic has exposed the degree to which burnout is fundamentally driven mostly by external forces um, and external circumstances that individuals lack control over. Um, and so just acknowledging that, that this is 
you know, an unprecedented experience for people and that, and that people are having really normal emotional and stress reactions to this set of challenges is critical. Uh, and along with that is normalizing the range of emotions that so many healthcare workers are experiencing while they're trying to deliver high quality care. I think particularly, you know, in the face of vaccine hesitancy, a lot, you know, it's very hard for overworked healthcare workers to continuously take care of very sick people when they feel like that, you know, could have been prevented. Um, that's not an entirely new feeling because there's a long history of sort of behavior influencing disease in medicine, but the scope of it is really unprecedented right now. And so I think helping people understand that all of the different emotions that they're feeling right now is a really normal reaction to the set of circumstances that they're encountering is important. Uh, and at the same time, organizations can develop support programs that provide peer support and more sustained professional support to healthcare workers. They can develop different ways of delivering care that might help to alleviate strain. For example, coming up with ways to safely defer some inpatient care to the outpatient setting to reduce the number of patients that nurses and hospital teams are trying to take care of. Um, and I think particularly, you know, reducing low value care, uh, it defined probably in a number of ways, which increases the volume of healthcare services that people are, are having to deliver, but may not ultimately help patients. Uh, and that's, I think, particularly problematic now that there's so much strain on the healthcare workforce. But I would come back also to this fundamental issue of finding ways to help healthcare workers connect to their mission and their purpose and why, why they do what they do, even in the face of all these challenges. Um, because I think the ability to connect to mission and purpose can be extremely sustaining, even in the face of, of many, many challenges. And a lot of that comes from leadership at multiple levels, you know, leadership within units, um, within hospitals, and, and within, you know, broader healthcare organizations. The importance of leadership and effective communication, I think, is really vital. I definitely agree. Um, having correct communication and uh, a leader who understands uh, the folks uh, that they're working with. Um, Ian, I wanted to uh, bring up this issue that you alluded to. Um, over the last year or so, uh, there has been a lot of uh, vaccine hesitancy. And as you said, you know, sometimes as a provider, it's very challenging to take care of folks who um, you'd feel, you know, they have the chance uh, to get the vaccine. Unfortunately, they now have COVID. And as providers in the ICU, um, we are requested to provide medications that have very little evidence or can actually cause harm. And there's this constant uh, back and forth between uh, family members, the physicians, the nurses, 
about what appropriate care should be for really, really sick patients. And it's a high-stakes uh, situation. Uh, a lot of uh, consequences uh, and outcomes uh, can be affected uh, um, by these discussions. How would you recommend um, physicians and healthcare providers deal with this challenging situation? Um, it, you're right. It, it is an immense challenge. Um, I think there's a couple things. One, I, I come back to this idea of the organizational support, um, which I think can be very helpful. And when it's clear, when providers are, um, I should say, when you know, when physicians in particular are supported by an organization with a set of organizationally endorsed treatments for COVID that they can point to and say, this is how we provide evidence-based care. Uh, it can help sometimes alleviate some of that feeling that it's, you know, you as an individual physician who might be refusing to provide a particular non-evidence-based treatment to this particular patient. Um, and, and I know that I personally have um, benefited from feeling that organizational support where I work, and I have used that um, way of communicating with patients and families uh, in, in the ICU where I work. Um, and th the other piece of this is um, very challenging, but I think can be very helpful, which is to understand, just like um, in sort of non-pandemic times, that there's just so much emotion coming from patients and families when someone is very sick. And a lot of what comes out as obsession with details or requests for non-evidence-based treatment is fundamentally an emotional response to a really scary situation. Um, and it's not easy to hold sort of frustration with people at the same time that you try to be empathic. But I think trying to do that and hold those conflicting feelings um, can help you empathize um, and, and fundamentally support a patient and, and their family through a really challenging time because, you know, as difficult as it is, you know, ultimately, people who are seeking help in the hospital, you know, are scared and they're dealing with probably the worst time in their lives. I know, you know, I've cared for many patients who have had multiple family members who, you know, have died and their family is struggling with the idea of um, one person dying while they've just buried another family member. And so I think just acknowledging the amount of emotion that comes behind a lot of those sometimes conflicted interactions is important. Yeah, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. A lot of the providers or physicians think that the patient's family are looking for details or in actual fact they just want to know that the physician and his team and her team are going to take good care of their loved one and do the best to make sure that they live. Um, Ian, 
there are a lot of different practices um, across the United States. Um, if you follow Twitter and you hear different folks promoting uh, different times uh, uh, that family members can visit uh, their loved ones, uh, different practices across uh, the, the, the different regions, how would we? Is, is there a need to standardize uh, the way we deliver our care, or should we allow um, each state to, you know, to do what's best for their community? Yeah, I mean that's I think. Um... I think constrained visitation uh, actually makes our lives sometimes difficult when we're taking care of very sick patients because it can be really hard to convey just how sick someone is um, when their families can't see them. Um, And I think it can be really hard for a family to imagine saying goodbye to someone when they can't physically be there. These are difficult conversations to have, even when you're sitting across the table from someone. Um, And there's obviously a challenge in wanting to ensure the safety of the healthcare workforce and not allowing, you know, infectious COVID people into the hospital. Um, But I think we've also learned that, you know, with with reasonable safety protocols um, and, you know, widespread vaccination of healthcare workers, we can probably maintain uh, the safety of the healthcare workforce with some middle ground that that permits a reasonable amount of family visitation. Um, and, and I think that really helps with our ability to support families in really difficult end-of-life circumstances. No, I definitely agree. Um, what I've learned is uh, uh, once the family is allowed to visit after that uh, two- to three-week uh, restrictive period, it's very important that you allow them to spend time with their loved one because they may not be seeing them again. Um, so uh, the importance of having uh, adequate visitation hours and allowing them to see how sick their family member really is. Ian, you've been very generous with your time in sharing um, your thoughts on how to foster hospital resilience. Um, what challenges do you think we'll face in the upcoming year uh, with regards to COVID? Um, well, I certainly hope that, that this Delta wave um, is the last major wave. I don't know whether that will be the case or not. Um, I, I certainly hope that continued investment in public health campaigns to encourage vaccination will will reduce the number of new admissions with COVID-19. I, I am personally most concerned about the ongoing constraints around capacity and, and workforce. I think we really need as individual healthcare workers, uh, as health systems, and as a country to try to mitigate the workforce challenges in the hospital because my biggest concern is actually not about the care of patients with COVID-19 because I hope that vaccination will reduce the number of those patients we see in the hospital, but the impact of the pandemic on the healthcare workforce may very well begin to compromise our ability to just deliver routine care to patients without COVID. Uh, And so I think this is really going to be the challenge of the next several years um, as we work to recover from these early years of the pandemic. I definitely agree. And also the challenge of uh, caring for the folks who have survived COVID but are left with the 
great disability. Um, they'll be needing to work with the physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, and trying to reintegrate themselves into uh, the workforce or for folks to take care of them. Um, Ian, I just want to give you the opportunity to leave our audience with any concluding remarks, um, and we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to the ATS community, as well as to write this really important article in JAMA entitled uh, Fostering Hospital Resi Resilience, Lessons from COVID-19. Ian, your final words? Uh, I think just, just again, finding a way personally and, and with your team uh, in whatever healthcare environment you work in to connect with your mission and your purpose as a healthcare provider uh, to, to help sustain you and those around you uh, in the years to come. Because we all do really meaningful work, it's very important, and I think it's so vital that we're there to provide that um, in the future. Can't agree anymore. Remember why we are here to do the job that we do. You take care, Ian. Really great chatting with you. A big thank you to Dr. Ian Barbash, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.